Today's show is sponsored by The Wandering Owl. TheWanderingOwl.com Imagine yourself under a starry sky, around the warm glow of the sacred fire, as your hosts, Saranth Odinson and Jim Two Snakes, talk about shamanism, animism, books, science, psychology, pop culture, and more. Welcome to a show inspired by those late-night conversations by real-life spiritual practitioners. Won't you come and join us around Grandfather Fire? My roots reach deep into soil and stone, to the core of fire in the earth. My roots reach deep into history and home, to the heart of every ancestor. My roots reach deep into trial and triumph to the soul of each spirit worker. My roots reach deep into weft and warp to every diviner's domain. My roots reach deep into blood and battle to the heart of each Ulfhefen. My roots reach deep into ash and elm to the first people. My roots reach deep into Odin's steam to roots entwined with roots. My roots reach deep into Urthra's well, to the waters shared in life. My roots reach deep into frost and flame to the eldest of our kin. Welcome everybody to another episode of Around Grandfather Fire. You're listening to episode number 26. I am Jim Two Snakes, joined by my co-hosts Sarenth Odinson and Caitlin Stormbreaker. How are you guys doing tonight? I'm doing really good. Uh, <laughs> I finally put up a boundary with work and said, all right, guys, I'm done for a couple of weeks. So <laughs> I'll be back at it in September. So I actually have a little bit of breathing room going on right now. So that's nice. What is the deal this week? I mean, we talked about it a little bit before we actually hit the record button, but like there is so much, it, like, it feels like Mercury retrograde still going and work has just been punishing me this week. I don't know what the deal is. Uh, it, Sarah, how is yours going? so everybody's having a good old time i'm probably gonna hit at least five overtime this week uh yeah so um you know great on the money front but you know right uh, i'm playing catch up with sleep on my days off um when uh our baby girl lets us um (laughs) (laughs) yeah so yeah uh it's Overall, I've been fairly busy. Um, I've started really working every week at uh, Crossing Hedgerow Sanctuary, which is a local farm and spiritual sanctuary here in uh, the Ypsilanti area. So that's been really good for me, mind, body, and soul. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, yeah, it's it's work, but it's it's a kind of work that's really soulful. Right. So, yeah. That's really that's cool. That's really cool. And then, Caitlin, you got a little bit of a break, but you, I want to make sure we mention this, you're going to be at an event doing some readings coming up pretty soon, and that's to benefit actually, Ann Arbor I'm, Pagan Pride Day, correct? Uh, correct, but I'm actually doing cleansings with oh, excellent. an asterisk of maybe doing readings on the side if somebody wants one, um, but primarily I'll be doing cleansings with my Mesa. Oh, cool. Very cool. Uh, what are the dates and locations on there? Do you happen to recall off the top of your head? Um, it is August 10th, 
uh, at Go Ice Cream in Ypsilanti, Michigan, uh, from 5 to 7 p.m. Very cool. Yeah, I wanted to make sure I got that in there because uh, Ann Arbor Pagan Pride has been really nice to us the last couple of years, having uh, Sarah and I in, and it's a great place to hang out and meet some people. So I kind of wanted to make sure that they got their got their say in there. Um, I also kind of want to mention one of our other podcaster friends um, because Three Pagans and a Cat uh, posted up on Facebook they've been doing some work with pagans in need and they tried to take out an advertisement so they could get the message a little bit further out on Facebook and Facebook flagged it as a low quality ad because they actually asked people to go and do something, which is against Facebook's new rules. And so it flagged it as a low quality ad. So it'll be seen by fewer people. Well, Screw that. This is benefiting pagans in need. So if you guys can get on the Three Pagans and a Cat uh, Facebook page and share their message, we'll, we'll screw around with Facebook's algorithm a little bit and, and get the word out anyway. So I'm encouraging people, if you guys could go do that. As you know, Three Pagans and a Cat, they do, it's a great show. They do a great job there and, and uh, really helping pagans in need here in the local area. So um, forget Facebook. We're going to do it anyway. So because <laughs> i'm a rabble rouser tonight apparently so <laughs> well it's good for you really yeah right I, i'm used to it i'm good at it i'm practiced so <laughs> well i know my back has tread marks <laughs> <laughs> you're not the only one unfortunately so do mine a few couple times there you know when this, when the old man true. or some other spirit shows up and says <clears throat> Yeah, about this thing that you got to do. What thing I got to do? You know what you got to do. No, I don't. Have you been reading your runes? What? No. I'm get on there. Just say it. Well, I feel really cool tonight about the, the guests that we're having on um, because this is a further exploration of Caitlin's way to getting to the shamanic paths and really this is the we now have the holy trinity of caitlin's <laughs> teachers on the show tonight um we want to welcome our guest tonight beth griggs who is a yoga instructor a spiritual counselor does distance work and all kinds of cool things and welcome to around grandfather fire beth thank you so much for having me i'm so happy to be here yeah guys we're really excited to have you um now, for the benefit of people who haven't heard tons of stories about you from Caitlin, <laughs> tell us a little <laughs> bit about yourself and, and your path and the things that you do. About myself and my path. Like yeah. Well, path too. Yeah, just whatever. Tell us about you, whatever you think that, that means. That's so much fun. Okay, <laughs> so um, let's see. I grew up a minister's daughter. And um, went through various and sundry paths, including the pagan path, because in my family, um, we have a family tradition. And so my grandmother and my great aunts, her sisters, kind of raised me in the family um, tradition. And so in college and that kind of thing, I really explored that, which led me into Buddhism and then sure. I ended up having a really um, kind of horrific injury in which my foot was bent backwards and crushed. Oh. Um, I was working as a teacher with troubled youth at a lockdown facility. And um, a very angry teenager wanted 
to be in my room alone, which, you know, is an honor, right? Like he felt like that was a safe space. So Mm -hmm. I felt like I did a good job, you know, but um, yeah, couldn't let him have the room to himself. So I stuck my foot in the door. He was very strong. It didn't go well. And, um, you know, my doctor was going to put me on a ton of opioids in my early 30s. And was like, you're never going to be able to walk again. And probably you'll be in a wheelchair by 40. And, you know, I'll give you whatever medicine you need because all the nerves are severed. And um, so I was like, I need another option. Right, right. (laughs) And he's like, well, I heard that yoga stuff might help. That yoga stuff. (laughs) (laughs) Brilliant. there are any people in the medical profession you never know what little sentence or phrase somebody might pick up on and those inner guides are like go do that go do that (laughs) so uh so I went and found a book and started right away and then healed myself using yoga and meditation and my spiritual path and then uh, I was like wow people should know about this so Somebody does this for a living, right? <laughs> so I felt like the whole universe kind of picked me up out of my life and dropped me in a new one. <laughs> and, uh, mm-hmm. I started my path um, learning to become a yoga therapist. And I work with a lot of people who are dealing with whatever transitions, maybe empty nest syndrome, right. or maybe it's transition to understanding they now have chronic pain or diabetes, or maybe it's you know retirement. Um, or cancer. Mm. So people in that transition where it's like, how do I do this one? Um, that's who I love working with. And I tell people straight up, I am not a psychotherapist. I'm using yoga <laughs> right. and real honest spiritual life um, to support people on a spiritual path. So no question, we're going to do some spiritual things when we work together. So yeah. So, that is really cool. That's what I do. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what I kind of mean when I, I I talk about how there are a lot of similarities between some of these very spiritual paths and how people get on them and that sort of thing. Because really, that story kind of parallels a lot of the shamanic initiation stuff. I had something happen, and it feels like spirit picked me up by the scruff of the neck and said, no, here's your new life. And uh, that's a common story, you know, so... It's so fascinating, you know, the, the whole history of like different cultures and how they've looked at the ordeal, mm-hmm. right? Or the, yeah. the trial. Mm-hmm. And so there is a, there's a very clear mark. And in my family tradition, um, we talk about this as well, that there's the ordeal. And if, if you have one, it will show you your path. But sometimes when you have multiples, um, you actually realize you're being you're being so severely directed into more of a healing um, kind of path where you're doing really spiritual work with people. So for me, I actually had three major trials. That one was the was the middle one, hmm. if you can believe that. Wow. So, <laughs> so now I'm curious about what the other two were. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, the first one, when I was 16, I had a boyfriend put me in the hospital for a month. Oh, man. And um, so not a lot of people are used to talking to a 16-year-old who knows what death really is. Um, So very early, I 
found a lot of adults were afraid to talk with me, which is kind of one of those marks, right? So my right. grandmother calls me. Um, amazingly, she was still alive um, <laughs> into my 20s. She's, she was great-grandparent age, so but she was still alive at that point. And she's like, you know what this is? <laughs> she's like, <laughs> use it or it will use you, right? Gee, this all sounds familiar. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> You guys know what I'm talking about. Yeah. What do we call that? The spiritual clue by four, right? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So, but you know, at 16, you don't have all of the resources and things that you need to actually make that adjustment. And very few adults in our culture are taught the actual path for working through that whole journey. Mm -hmm. And so I found a lot of adults who actually hadn't gotten that far in their work. Um, that they knew actually spiritually what I was going through at that point and why I didn't really care about like my schoolwork. Right. Right. Yeah. yeah. And, oh, yeah. and that that was completely reasonable. So from that point on, luckily my family kind of knew a little bit of what to do and not, not, not great, but you know, they knew what to do <laughs> better than bit, nothing, <laughs> better than nothing to kind of get me going. So mm-hmm. I was a religious studies major. Um, in college and just like started hitting the books right Mm -hmm. all the different traditions so that's fascinating oh yeah it's fascinating if you don't mind me asking because Uh it's it's such a sensitive thing um what differentiated the assault that put you in the hospital and gave you the spiritual kick in the ass from another clue by four or what dif- what actually made this something other than just an assaultive boyfriend? What really kind of put you into that spiritual state? Because that's something that I encounter in the spiritual community a lot where people are like, there's no way uh, this kind of trauma can be a spiritual kick in the butt. That's horrid. I want to, I would like really very much if you can dig into that. If you can't, that's understandable too. I can totally dig into that. My question is, are we really like, we can really go there. Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Yes. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> this is like the real deal stuff. So, I mean, most, most adults in our culture haven't actually had anyone. Ma- okay. I believe a lot of people, most people have some major trial that happens in their life. And most people are not given any clue to the fact that, um, there's a means for working through that that is not about following um, what's going on in the physical world around you. And even though the physical world provides us with a means for grounding, it provides us with a means for staying in the body, right? Earth, Mm -hmm. like tangible earth becomes like this real thing. Like, okay, I'm going to like hold myself still in the body here right? And grounding in and and making contact with that. But I believe, and I've got to tell you, and working with people, I mean, it's so um, uplifting to me. It's a strange thing to say it's uplifting. But having worked with people who are going through these trials, right? Because that's really what I do. Uh, Working with people who are going through these trials, almost always the spirit world will walk right up and talk to you about it. Mm -hmm. 
And I don't know how else to put it. And it may be actual and like verbal if people have auditory abilities. If people do not, they will have a color kind of story or experience. Maybe dream work might be their thing. Or they will have animals. I know I've known people who are like, all of a sudden, it's like all the animals were coming out of the forest and like hanging out with me. And I know people who this is part of how the spirit world not only lets you know, hey, this isn't just about like, like maintaining your job and like making sure you had food, right. which is really, really critical during that period, right? But the spirit world will walk up and be like, hey, you know, you have this gift. Hey, we're only talking to you this way. Right. Oh, you can't hear words. Okay, we will give you items. Right. So mm-hmm. like the person who's really in connection with birds will suddenly have all these feathers that are showing up around, like mm-hmm. in an array, like beautifully displayed for them. And nobody knows how that happened. Right. <laughs> um, no. Or, you know, people who have like claircognizance where it's just knowing that it's almost like they get this sudden download. Those people have the hardest time, don't they? Oh, yeah. Because yeah. they, they don't hear anything and they don't see anything and not like there's no animal or dude walking up to them, right? They just suddenly get the download. So they're like, well, it's just me. And for them to understand that's actually how spirit talks to them. Um, yeah. can the, be a real the language of spirit is very challenging sometimes to even explain because uh, the we've all encountered, I'm sure, that a lot of the books and materials will talk about hearing a voice. But that's right. not that's there's only a fraction of people that actually hear a voice like that. A lot of people, it's that gut feeling, that intuition, that download that you're talking about. It might be sensations of heat or of of, of chills, or there's just so many ways that spirit can communicate, and it's unfortunate that people get stuck with a language that they think hearing is all there is to it because that really handicaps a lot of people. Right. And it's so beautiful. It's so beautiful. It's so like, there's so many different ways that it shows up. And it's one of my favorite things on the planet. And honestly, I have yet to meet somebody that I've worked with, that their spiritual gift isn't rising up all around them and saying, just come home for a minute. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't mean you're going to die. It means like, literally, you're taking up your home in yourself. Right? That makes sense. That's a great way to put it. Yeah. Definitely. So, so this comes from yoga, right? So like yoga uses the term asana and a lot of times people think asana posture, right? That's the word for posture. And they think they're going to go on the mat and do yoga postures and be moving. And that's one way. But when you read the yoga sutras, like the ancient writings, right, by Patanjali, and they talk about taking your seat and asana is actually taking a seat and the seat is like a throne, and your throne comes up and rises to meet you and you take your throne as what you are. And I have yet to have somebody who doesn't have some kind of seat in themselves that's rising up to meet them. Just some, you know, we're not taught how to read those languages in this culture. And it's always so hard for me to communicate to people like, oh, I have so much. I can help you see it. I can help you hear it. I can help you just start to recognize patterning is happening all around you. Mm-hmm. And people will come like it's a secret. I, you know, my 
my aunt came and talked to me, they say, you know, (laughs) my aunt's been dead for 20 years, but she came and she spoke to me and she said, you remember this story? And she told me this story. And now I know, now I know what I'm doing and that I used to love cooking. And now I'm supposed to be in the kitchen and like the whole home hearth magic is coming to them. Right. And like, I didn't do that. Right. Like, like whatever, like that's arising out of their own nature, their own seat coming up to meet them. Most we can do is help facilitate the process, but it's got to come from within. Right. So, yeah. Yeah. So I would say, so this is a long answer, but, (laughs) but you were asking, you know, what happened, right. That differentiated my experience. And I would say, luckily my family kind of primed me for that. Um, And so yeah, when the ancestors show up, you listen. Mm-hmm. Yep. And, uh, if you're smart and if you care and if you have a relationship, right? <laughs> so- <laughs> well, it seems to me as we're talking about it that um- – like you were talking about it, it, it all depends on how prepared you are for it, how much exposure you might have to it, maybe. Um, but even even in cultures that are a lot more traditional, maybe the, a lot of the shamanic sickness and the accidents that happen and that sort of thing are just because we have to have such a trauma to kind of break reality a little bit. And it's when reality's broken that we can kind of go, wow, there's more behind the scenes here that's going on. And some people are really invested in hurrying up and putting that reality back together and other people it'll never go back together the same way again that's really good that you brought that up because you're right if I think if I think to that first experience I had my um my dream life was so chaotic and and um upsetting and very difficult and the adults and the people in the world around me were trying to you know encouraging me to take medicines which I didn't want to take and encouraging me to try to stop having the dreams and luckily I was like, you know, there's symbols showing up in these dreams, you know, the crone when she shows up in your dreams and she has a little something to tell you, um, even if it's not friendly, you know, my, my dad, when I was, um, a kid, a small child, I would have nightmares and my dad would come to comfort me. And he's like, you know what they tell kids in China? I said, what? He goes, you know what they tell kids in China? They say, you got to go back in and talk to them. He's like, so you need to go back in and ask them what this is about. Hmm. Fascinating. He's like, not tonight, but tomorrow you need to. Yeah. Yeah. And so, (laughs) so here I am at 16, like battered and bruised and, um, isolated and, yeah, I'm having those rough dreams and I'm like, huh, I guess I got to go back in and ask what they really want to tell me. And that took a long time. But actually at that period after, so I was in the hospital for a month and there was a, a nice long um, period of transitioning back to normal life kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, spirit has amazing ways of making sure you meet the people you need to meet anyway. Mm-hmm. And uh, I met this amazing woman in Richmond, Virginia. I would love, if she hears this, I would love for her to contact me because I can't remember (laughs) her last name. And I'm like so grateful for her. Um, But she, I believe her name was Karen. 
and she had studied as a shaman for 14 years, I believe it was, living in a community in North Carolina. I think she was with a Tulaki um, medicine man down there and had just come back to Richmond when I met her and was like, when I first met her, I was like, I need help. <laughs> and, like this stuff happened and these doctors don't know what they're doing. Right. And, um, and she looked at me and she goes, well, you need to think about if it's for good or not. And then come back and tell me in 30 days. She like refused to work with me hmm. for 30 days until I was sure I was sure I was working for certain, you know, good purposes. Right. And then she's like, I was like, I need a soul retrieval. Like I knew that that, that was going on. And, uh, and she was like, no, you've got to do it yourself. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus, nothing like getting thrown in the deep end. Right. Know, right. So I'm like trying to trying to study with her. And she's always like, go do your work. Go do your work. Right. Um, but no, she constantly kept up with me for like fifteen years. Wow. wow! I would run into her every now and again. I would find her and go talk to her, and she would have the next morsel. Um, and I did a lot of dream work under her counsel that really helped me. And now that's like a whole world, right? Wow. That I really so. That's amazing. So, love for shamanic path right yeah yeah well the as we were i think we mentioned briefly that shamanism and and yoga the uh, a lot of the energies and places that they come from they're not exactly the same but they're really definitely intertwined there's a lot of similarities and you were mentioning that you you would consider the uh yoga the shamanic traditions that come from a certain that certain area of the world so that's why there's so much overlap you think Yes, I think, well, yoga, right, is the, um, in the Western world and in the United States and Mm -hmm. Europe and um, more of the Western world, we see it. Generally, you go to a studio, they got like some nice music and you get on the mat, you do some physical practices. If you're lucky, they'll do some breath work and like maybe you'll have a relaxation. Mm -hmm. They may or may not do meditation, but that's really the experience you have is that it's like a physical practice and a lot of times it's in a gym so it's just the physical right right um but if you go and you actually study with like monks and and um teachers um deeply in the path and you start diving into the yoga sutras and the vedas um and for me i went and studied ayurveda Ayurveda is the um, natural medicine of India, mm-hmm. and yoga is one part of that medicine. Yoga was created, the, the physical practice was created to help people who had a hard time going into meditation, going into that other state of consciousness. Okay, sure. Right? Mm-hmm. The back is hurting or the knees are hurting or whatever, and they, they would go do the asana, the physical practice, and then they would be ready to sit for longer and be able to concentrate more deeply, and it would put the mind into a state where they could move into that other state of consciousness more quickly or more effectively. Um, and the practice is also really meant to help us get in touch with um, the energetic body mm-hmm. in a way that people um, may not otherwise. So 
um, when you're working with asana, you are working with the energetic body and people will develop body consciousness, um, a sense of like, oh, this feels funny. And in the beginning, they can't tell you exactly where they're like somewhere in my butt, right? Like it feels, it feels like it hurts, you know, and then they move a little bit and they're like, oh, it's right here. And actually it's like, kind of more into the thigh and they find out like, Oh, I'm feeling muscles. I never felt before. And it's really just that they never had that fine tuned sense. And that's very close to understanding the energy, the movement of energy in the body, which goes into the chakras, right? So the chakras are these like whirling, swirling, amazing kind of amoebas of energy that are just prior to the creation of the physical body. And in yogic concept, cosmology, right? The idea is from the divine, there's the great dream that brings us into being. This might sound familiar. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. <laughs> uh, the great dream that brings us into being in it and through various and sundry little pieces, parts, it comes into these like, whirling energies just before physicality and the energy creates the body from there and those are the seven energy centers but the idea you know people read you read it in a book and you're like oh it created the body cool no it didn't create the body back then it is creating the body right now right. and always and so it's an active, creative process with spirit. And the chakra is part of how you feel that. So I would say that sounds pretty shamanic. Yeah, definitely <laughs> does. <laughs> definitely does. Well, the traditions that, as uh, as I was taught them, and, and as Caitlin has learned from me, the uh, in Peru, they have a different energetic system, but it's similar enough where a lot of the elders, once they got introduced to the terminology of chakras and that sort of thing, they were like, oh yeah, that's what the Westerners, the terms the Westerners use, that's what we'll, we'll use as well. And so, you know, there are slight differences in the historical structures and how they look. But then again, even in India, there are many different chakra maps and systems. It's just, there's one that generally speaking as Westerners we're more familiar with. Right. Well, you know, my family tradition comes from the Celtic. Um, I guess you could call it shamanic tradition. I don't. Mm -hmm. My grandmother never presented it with that term. Right. So right. I have to guess um, because you know things get lost in translation. Um, even though we still have in my family the pushtabil, you know, pushtabil's the um, mouth music and things. Mm. Oh, old country, we still have that. But um, but we lost a lot of the language. So, um, But the Celtic system has um, three, and they're considered cauldrons. And the positioning of the bowl, if it's down, it's closed. If it's forward, it's like a dish, like a dish wow. for like a TV at your yeah. house, where it's like a receiving dish, right? right. And then if it's fully um, understood, it becomes a bowl that can hold things and you don't have to do much work anymore, right? And they conceive it as three in the body. Well, when I was looking at that, and then I'm looking at the, the Indian tradition, well, those are the grantis. So in 
Indian tradition, there are three grantis that are between the chakras that are places where you can hold the energy um, to make it more effective or to keep it moving in the direction you want to. And people can accidentally create knots there, right? So you might feel a knot in your stomach. Mm. That's one of the grantis. Wow, but that's wow. also where those three cauldrons are envisioned in Celtic tradition. So I already had some like part of that information. That's fascinating. That was that's a term I'm not familiar with. So that's pretty interesting. I got some more research ahead of me. Every yeah. <laughs> every podcast we do, I all of a sudden have a much larger reading list. Yeah, so the, it's called the Three Cauldrons. I believe it's Sois, S-O-I-S. I don't know how to pronounce it because it's Gaelic and I don't know that, that word, but it's cauldrons, Coire, <laughs> Sois, and yeah. So anyway, it's a fun one to look up. Yeah, fascinating. I do think it's so cool how over all these different uh, traditions all over the world, they all have an energetic system within somewhere within their tradition that talks about energy flow and how it actually creates the body and helps the body function and stuff. So like, it's just, it's always very fascinating to me to come across more information like that from very different points of the world. And I, it's just, it's cool. It's fascinating. I've found people from Africa, other parts of Asia, Latin America, American Indian, like, I mean, it's incredible. The Jewish system has it. Um, and it, if you think of like the, the seven chakras, if you put the um, tefirot, right? Do you, sefirot, mm -hmm. do you know this? Mm -hmm. The sefirot or the, um, oh, what is the English for that? The, um, the 10 spheres. Yeah, the spheres for the ladder, right? Mm -hmm. In um, Kabbalah, right? Kabbalah has the those spheres, but if you look at it, it's on seven levels. And they have Ida and Pingala, the right and the left, just like the Hindu or the yogic system does. They have both sides. And they have it cross at the same point. And they both have the abyss at the same point. It's incredible. Mm. And so you're like, okay, so this is the chakra system. <laughs> it's beautiful. It's beautiful. And they have, you know, so you can get into the whole like hermetic thing. So there's like the Egyptian, Thoth, and then you've got like Hermes, and they're teaching that whole like Havalah connection from that. And then they have Davanturi in india who's the same figure that mm. showed up and taught the same things oh Damantari, yeah so it's kind of fascinating and if you dig into some of the history it's funny because they you start seeing uh for instance heracles shows up in some of their statuary so they're also the greeks are also sharing their gods with the uh the uh ancient hindu people as well so some of these might be cross currents down the same kinds of rabbit holes, which is to me just absolutely fascinating because, I mean, Heracles' cult was on from one side of the world to the other. Um, and I think so was Hermes. One of his most common uh, shrines is what's called a hern or a herm, excuse me. 
which is just a, uh, a small pillar of a stone, sometimes with a penis, sometimes not. And you know, it, to me, it, it's, it's really fascinating how you get a lot of similar shrine work between these two cultures. Is about that how Kind of, but it's, it's not housed within a temple proper. It's okay. actually uh, like, way, like way shrines on the road. So, but it's just to me, it's really fascinating how it's that protective power symbol is still present in both systems, in both religions. Hmm. That's fascinating. Yeah. So I, I, um, I used to teach kids, right? And I taught a bunch of kids from South Korea who had a really good understanding of their own history, which was fascinating and helpful for me because I'm teaching world history, and they're like, "Wait, why aren't you talking about Ashoka?" And I'm like, okay, tell me about Ashoka, you know, bring me some books. You know? <laughs> so they brought me some books. I'm like, wait a minute. So King Ashoka is like horrible king, right, who is killing everybody. And then he, you know, finds Buddhism and he's like, okay, I have to like make sure Buddhism goes all throughout all of India. So he like proliferated that and built a ton of temples like all over the country. But he also sent emissaries out to Greece and they already saw they had the togas. So King Ashoka did the background work to establish the history between India and Greece. So those kids all still have that in their history books. Oh, that's fascinating. I didn't know oh, that. No, neither so did it, I. It predates King Ashoka. It's, so, it's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> So mind blown yet again. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, going back to Hermes though. So yeah, Hermes and Damantari. The, the same, maybe. Maybe maybe that dude was traveling. Right? Oh, just a bit. <laughs> <laughs> could be. Could be. Maybe. I don't know much about Damantari. Was he renowned as a traveler? And uh, was he a patron god of certain people? Like, for instance, Hermes is the, like a patron to thieves uh, and also healers. So was there a sort of associations that Damantari had in common? Yeah, so Damantari is considered the god of Ayurveda. He's the one who said he came to Earth as one of the forms of Vishnu because the people didn't know how to use herbs or heal themselves. And he came and taught everyone how to use herbs and wrote a lot of the books um, and taught several different key teachers that are the early Ayurvedic teachers. So Ayurveda is an independent medicine system that arose in India. We know at least more than 6,000 years ago. They had hospitals in India where doctors were working together and sharing notes and keeping books of what they discovered about eight different subjects um, in medicine, going back at least that far. And um, yeah, they, I mean, my, when I was studying Ayurvedic medicine, one of our textbooks is from Shushruta, which is from 400 BC. Oh, dang. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Internal medicine textbook. Wow. wow. Gotcha. 
Holy crap. <laughs> yeah, that's fascinating. <laughs> that is really fascinating. So it's kind of interesting. And it and the, the Greek system with the humors that goes into the Western Hermetic traditions and looking more at um, the spiritual aspects of understanding alchemy has a lot in common, actually, with Ayurveda. So... If you go that route. Wow. <laughs> what? I'm just kind of amazed. I didn't realize there was so much interconnection with some of that. Uh, that honestly, this is new territory for me. So that's really amazing. Rock. Yeah. It's, it's like, a, it's amazing though. Cause you know, the British came and took over India and they destroyed a lot of the texts and things. Mm-hmm. And there were, um, I believe eight families that took everything and hid it. Um, and those teachers are now teaching and they're starting to reestablish the more proper um, expression um, of Ayurveda. I mean, they've been doing it, but I mean, since the British left, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so in the West, we just didn't know about it. So, so it's like things coming now. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm curious. Tell us a little bit more, uh, more about your teachers and how you learned all this. Uh, how how that actually got started for you? Yeah. So um, so I studied yoga at the um, Sachidananda Ashram, which is Yogaville in Virginia. So it's right by Charlottesville, Virginia, and it's amazing. I um. You know, one one spring, I was practicing the old craft, right? And <laughs> one spring, the winds came up, and I was in college. I'm like in my 20s, and the wind comes up and is like, "You must turn right." And I'm like, "Okay." <laughs> so I turned right, and I drove, and it's like, actually, now we're gonna turn left. And I was like, "Okay, I don't know where I'm going." So I left the city, and I drove way deep into the mountains, and it's like, now go down this road. And I'm like, where am I going? And then I go around a mountain and there's this huge lotus flower in the middle of the hills in Virginia. And I'm like, what planet am I on? (laughs) (laughs) So I drive down and I'm like, do, do, do. So you seem to have a huge like building shaped like a flower in your midst. How does this happen? <laughs> the shed kit from Home Depot went horribly wrong. No. And the gardener's like, um, actually, this is an ashram. Would you like me to show you around? And I was like, please. <laughs> so, so, and it's a temple to all religions. They even have one whole section dedicated to paganism and shamanism. And it's all the religions of the world. And there's a huge meditation place upstairs. And then he's like, yeah, so Swami Satchidananda is in India right now. If he were here, I'd just take you to meet him. And I'm like, I guess that's not going to happen then. So I left and I was like, you know, driving home, like that was a weird, you know, spring equinox. Cool. (laughs) You know, (laughs) it was spring equinox, right? So, uh, so I drive back and I just, I go back to school and like keep studying. And then when all this stuff happens with my foot and I'm like, I'm going to study yoga, right? I open the yoga journal. First time I ever got one, I open it up and there's that Lotus building. When I first opened the book, the magazine, I was like, oh, (laughs) 
<laughs> so, so I get there to study and everybody's talking to each other. I study with my teacher, Satya. Satya Greenstone is um, one of the amazing teachers at Yogaville. I highly recommend her as your teacher. And she, uh, if you want to study yoga. And uh, she's asking everybody, how did you choose to come here? And I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> the wind. <laughs> the wind told me. <laughs> the wind showed up and said, go that way. <laughs> um, so it uh, it was kind of amazing. So everything had those like coinky dinks with it. So I studied there. I studied um, in that tradition a long time. Uh, as I continued on with my studies and became a yoga therapist, I studied with Yanni Chapman, um, who is one of the founders of the yoga therapy um, community um, that now holds the big conferences and everything and certifies um, therapists. She was one of the founders, um, early presidents of that organization. And um, I got to study with her, and she studied directly with Swami Sachidananda, as did Satya. So I felt like I always kind of had this kind of direct line in. And then as I studied Ayurveda, I studied with Paul Douglas. He's at New World Ayurveda, which is out of Maine, but he used to be in Ann Arbor. So I did oh, wow. my clinical practice in uh, Maine and in Ann Arbor. So it's kind of neat. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, but I've, you know, I've had a lot of teachers in the flesh that I've kept really close contact with. And then I've also had, you know, spirit, which is a wonderful guide. So <laughs> maybe you guys know about that. Had a so, few experiences. A bit, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, but I would say um, Paul Douglas, Dr. Douglas, who runs the Ayurvedic Medicine School, he really um, kind of took it to that next level where we weren't just learning about the body, but how that connects into the spiritual life and all of the different levels of what's going on with people as they're developing spiritually and how to actually hold people through that process. Um, and actually what constitutes high quality um, supporting of someone as they're developing their gifts, as they're developing um, their own understanding of themselves and relationship to the world around them. And the important part that a relationship with nature plays um, in healing. And so, yeah. It's so is is he the one that taught you the technique that you used for me trying to get that soul shard where it was supposed to go? Or was that spirit taught? You're talking about just recently? Yeah. <laughs> that was just spirit. <laughs> well, that, that was a really good and a very unique technique. I've never, I, well, I guess I've never retrieved a soul shard prior to this, but I've never heard of anybody using that type of um, physical body movement to get the spirit back to where it needs to be. The experience? Okay, so that experience, um, are you comfortable with me describing a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. Go ahead. So um, part of that also comes from training in martial arts 
And so when I studied, I said I, I studied Buddhism for a while and I studied with monks. So I studied with um, Bhante Ratana, who is now in, he taught in Richmond, and I would visit with him twice a week um, and then study with him. It was interesting. It was a Vietnamese community, but he he also knew French, and my French was okay, and I was the only Anglo. So, like, a lot of Vietnamese people speak French, so when he had to give me instruction, it was in French. So I actually never studied Tai Chi in English um, I say it in French, so I only know like physically how to do things. <laughs> <laughs> but my awareness is kinesthetic, so like I can totally do it, right? But um, but I don't really know the English for things. So um, I studied with him, and then I also um, dated a world champion kickboxer <laughs> for a little while. He was the cool. Okay. He was so great. I can tell you, this is a fun story. So he, <laughs> one day, I, I had been studying Tai Chi with a Buddhist monk and had like all this esteem and like my teacher and like love for the practice. And I started dating this guy and he's like, all right, we're going to like spar, you know? So we're going to, we're not really going to fight, but we're going to like see, he's like, show me what you can do kind of thing. Right. So I'm like, okay. Mm -hmm cool so he's like all right ground and center so I'm like closing my eyes like trying to take a deep breath he's like what are you doing <laughs> I was like, what he goes what do you think you're doing a punch is coming and I was like no it's not you know <laughs> <laughs> no it's not and he's like, well, no, I'm not going to punch you. But like, that's not what you do. <laughs> your feet need to be on the ground. Why are you closing your eyes? You know, <laughs> and like, until that moment, I hadn't really thought like, oh, this is actually real. Like, show up. And so what I learned from that in combination working with martial artists, in combination working with yoga, yoga therapy, there's nothing like having a physical experience to realize like, oh, I got my spirit is not naturally in the body. Right. This is a temporary situation. And when we when we have experiences that are making things move, they're moving into the spirit world, they're moving into this other place. So I need to call it back down into this. And this is for real. And so we have to bring it back to like, no, actually you're right here. And so that way of, like I let you know what I was doing, right? Yeah. But you weren't really expecting I was actually going to push you. But, like, you knew I was going to touch you. Yeah. But I'm like, no, you actually have to be here. And mm -hmm. it's, like, calling you here. And there's a there's something where I can talk to you about it all day, but until you have somebody actually walk up and, like, like push you. Yeah, mm -hmm. definitely. You're not sure if you're stable on your feet. Mm -hmm. And we want to be sure we're stable. Yeah. On our feet, like in this, like, oh, you mean actually here. Yeah. Right? <laughs> yep. And there's something about that that it's like, oh, this is like immediate. And now this isn't like, we're not going to like think about it for a second. So I think that that actually came from that guy. Well, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, people, there, there's a tendency to kind of divorce 
the physical from the spiritual. And I don't think that's a healthy thing to have happen. I mean, like for the example of the cleansings, uh, Caitlin, you know, the, we could just energetically or with our allies do a cleansing, but there's something about standing up there. And as soon as people feel the feathers on their body or feel your Mesa hit their shoulders or, or something like that, that is really tied in, or even a lot of the teachings we've done. And I think Sarenth is the same way where it involves physically doing something, building a fire, or you got to go for a hike in the woods, or there's something, the, these two things are married. We are spiritually expressing in this plane as well. It's not a separate thing. I think that's a remnant kind of left over from the Christian upbringing that a lot of us had, that this is, these are separate realms. Well, you know, there's like a whole idea. I mean, yeah, physical physicality, getting into the body for ritual, framing the ritual with a start where I have to actually go into the space where I'm working and actually get there and be sure that I'm there. Um, I think that, yeah, the history of, of um, taking indigenous peoples in various parts of the world and having to make them move into this is something somebody else does and it becomes a thought I have instead of a physical experience I'm right. having. Um, I think it does. It has led to a lot of people in the Western world mm-hmm. not being really aware of the power of like the physicality of the practice and people think they can read a book about a practice and they've got it. I, I definitely agree with that. And I'm going to, I'm going to pick on, on folks who work with runes on this one, because it's one thing to read about the runes and it's another thing to speak them, to, to uh, croak them, um, to, to bring them forth from your body. And it's, it's, there's a, the physicality that comes with actually speaking the runes that you can't get from just thinking them in your head. Um, there's it, a communication between body and spirit uh, on different levels that happens when you do that work. And sans the body getting involved, there's a missing piece. You You can't really... Um, get there without having the full self present, if that makes sense. That makes a ton of sense to me. I'm wondering if for you, if that experience is really like, so I'm thinking yogically, right? So I'm going, oh, there's so much throat chakra and that like co-creation aspect of my voice with the divine voice my voice my expression coming through the expression of the divine happening in the throat but I wonder if the experience is not just in the throat if there's a feeling that arises in another part of the body as well um for me when I bring the runes forth with my mouth um very briefly, let me just explain some of it is that uh, these runes are spirits. So there's a, a spirit relationship with these beings and I've offered blood to them. So there's that aspect to it. So I feel through my whole body when I bring up the runes and I, I, I intone their names, um, there's a very different feel than just, oh, I'm saying something. Um, so it, to me, it's engaging the full sevens. 
uh, if you will, the full seven chakras, as opposed to, oh, this is just throat work. This is just upper head work. I mean, it's a for me, it's a very visceral, full body experience. Yeah, that's awesome. It it also occurs to me too that as you say that, Sarah, as I. And I think about how all of us interact with spirit differently. It's interesting because just like we always say, like your relationship with the runes or with certain spirits is different than mine. None of us all have have identical voices. So as we intone those things, it is a that is a physical reflection of the fact that we all have an individual relationship with these spirits. Yeah, and and when I do the it's called Galder, um, and there's different ways that people Galder. Uh, Galder. Galder. Interesting. Yeah, I, I, I was having a hard time getting the word to come out. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, when you Galder, I've had the experience of other people having physical reactions to the runes being intoned with them. Um, <laughs> everything from feeling, it, it depends on how you intone them too, because having a very harsh tone to the rune will produce a different effect as opposed to a very light touch. And so there's this physicality aspect to it that it makes a lot of sense when you're talking about breath work with Asunas and being enthroned. And I think that, plays into how we work with magic, how we work with spirits. It, it's all interconnected to me because, well, I mean, besides the foolishness of hiving off the body from the rest of the spirits that are you know, present in it, um, you're, you're talking about bringing in the breath and the physicality. You know, if you're not grounding in your body, what the hell are you grounding into? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I yeah. mean... I mean, there's a root chakra there for a reason. Um, you know, we uh, in the, the North system, we understand ourselves as being descended from trees. You know, these are these are enlivened pieces of driftwood that are a part of our ancestry. So we literally have roots in the earth. So it would make sense that physicality is involved because, well, you can't really divorce it, really. I mean, you're, you've got a vessel for a reason. It's not just a vessel. It's also a spirit in and of itself, at least in our, in our tradition. Do you feel like that's related to Owam? It is. Um, we share certain uh, trees and things as sacred beings. So uh, birch is one of them. So Burkana is known uh, as a, the mother rune. It's related to our, the all mother Frigga. Um, and just saying the word Burkana brings us really uplifting and warm feeling it's almost a kind of a hug feeling so that's so amazing you bring up birch i was living up in marquette which was up in the upper peninsula and my home was on the edge of a birch forest and so being right at that in between place (laughs) you get to know those you get to know that line pretty well and like what the difference Mm -hmm. is this forest in this one and literally having my home on the line and and what the energy is between those is just amazing so oh, that's wild. <laughs> that was a nice <laughs> well actually Sarenth, you make me you make me think a little bit too we've talked about it on the show and beth might be interested that in the in the northern traditions the physical body is considered one of the aspects of the soul they don't separate it out at all. And mm-hmm. 
that's something that I think is a lot more common, like you were saying, with indigenous systems as well. Um, There's just not that separation. And it actually even makes me pause to think about the fact that how much of the sickness in our society is because we keep trying to separate these things uh, as much as we do. Absolutely. We have five, um, they call them sheets in yoga, the five bodies. Um, and so, yeah, the physical one, are you guys familiar with this? No, what I'm not. So the, the five sheets, the, the physical one is, it's not delineated as physical. You know what they delineate it as? They call it food huh interesting they call it the food body <laughs> i like that it's the one that needs food and is food that makes a lot of sense i really like that <laughs> i like that a lot and then the food is the thing that houses the next one which would be pranamaya kosha the prana the the life force right the the energetic body um, and the Western concept of like the energetic body, like if you think like more new age thoughts about it or whatever, like mm-hmm. what Western tend to think of, that's a limited idea of it. And it's really, really intertwined with the food, right? Like you get your energy from your food and the energy is part physical kind of, and part like actually just the life of it. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so I know I used to, um, I used to know a Baba Lao. Uh, yeah, yeah. I used to know a Baba Lao in DC. I used to live in Richmond and I went up to DC and I visited this Baba Lao and he only spoke Spanish. So his son would come out and like help us talk. And it was totally, it was totally weird. Okay, I met this guy at like a pagan center in Pennsylvania and he walked up to me and he just, I don't know why, like, I'm like, random white girl like I look I don't I look like a white girl right like I'm a white girl and he just like singled me out and he just comes up and starts speaking Spanish and like I understood him so I spoke back to him and he's like you will come see me tell me in Spanish you will come see me and I'm like cool all right (laughs) and if you say I should I guess I will and um so I went to visit him in DC and it was so funny because it was like a rough neighborhood and I get out of the car and these guys like start walking over I'm like nervous and they're like where are you going and I'm like I'm going to Baba Lao's house and they're like oh (laughs) 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 they all back off but uh but yeah he talked about he taught me a lot about like the importance of food and eating and relationship and that that idea of how it has nurturance but it also requires this like understanding of what it means for something to die or to lose the life force and like there's this really um so he's from like voodoo, right? Like he's a voodoo priest, is Baba Lao. So he's like trying to explain this to me. And he like really wanted to kill a chicken. And I really didn't want him to kill a chicken because I was a vegetarian at the time. And I'm like, please don't kill a chicken. Plus I'm allergic, right? So I'm allergic to, I'm allergic to feathers. So I was like, please don't. Um, but it was kind of, it was entertaining because he thought I was just being like Western and like worried right. about it. But I was actually like, no, I will break out. Um, but (laughs) so he agreed to use like plants instead so I learned a lot about the plants but 
he he uh, he performed this beautiful ceremony for me and really talked about like the importance of relationship and feeding. And this idea of that feeding doesn't just happen to the food body, right? So I'm going to start using yoga terms, right? Like the food body needs the food, but the food body is the food. So he was explaining this too, right? That like we feed the ancestors. The ancestors are no longer in the physical body, but they still need that energetic part Mm -hmm. of what was a part of the food. And so we feed the ancestors and we feed our our life and that those who have gone before us are not separated from us in any real sense, like, and that, that concept of feeding. So it's really interesting to later come to yoga and be like, Oh, Oh, we're going to have the same conversation. How interesting. (laughs) (laughs) Because I would never put like voodoo and yoga together. Like I would never in a million years think that those have much in common. And then when I started talking to monks, at the ashram, the monks are like, I'm like, yeah, so like the Bhagavad Gita, which is one of the, the spiritual texts of Hinduism, mm-hmm. right? And a lot about yoga is from there. It's like basically a book about how all things have to eat and when it's okay to kill. Like that's kind of what the book is about. It was really interesting and like the honor and sacrifice and the honor in those relationships. And so it's kind of, you wouldn't normally think of yoga having that. Not, yeah, not in the Western society, not at all. I mean, you, you think yoga over here and you think Ugg boots and pumpkin spice. Boots <laughs> 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 and pumpkin spice? Yes, that's what I said. Yeah, it's so good. Like, it's such a wide spectrum. But the Bhagavad Gita is about how it's a warrior's job to protect his people. And the whole thing is that Arjuna doesn't want to kill his teacher. But his teacher is part of this group of roving warriors coming to kill his village. And Arjuna is the prince, and it's his job to protect the villagers. And it doesn't matter that that's his teacher. And the whole thing is Krishna explaining why he must fight. It's a it's a fascinating dialogue. I um, <laughs> I I love it, and I I, I dissected it for a class. Uh, I was uh, in a Hinduism course, and one of the assignments that we had for it was okay, pick a text, and compare it to something you know. I went, oh, perfect. Have them all. Sounds great. <laughs> I've got the sayings of Odin on the one hand, and I've got um, Krishna's dialogue with Arjuna, in particular, right before he's about to ride into battle, on the other. And I'm like, wow, there's tick similarity. I had more similarities between the two texts than I had differences. I mean, wow. uh, Odin Are talks a lot about, oh, I'm dead serious. I mean, I had a whole, God, I don't remember how many words, how many pages I devoted to this thing. It was a long time. Uh, <laughs> I'm gonna have to go call. read that. That's fascinating. I'm gonna post it to my blog so you folks can read it because I haven't I haven't actually posted this thing. But I found it really fascinating that two very divergent cultures at different times had very similar views on on the roles of dharma, if you will, of a person's place in society and, and what their relationship to killing and death is, hmm. and something that you keep coming back to in the feeding of the body and the feeding of the spirit. 
again, I'm going to poke at the runes on this one again. You know, that's part of the reason why we feed the runes is so that you know to establish and continue that right relationship. It's a very similar process to what you're describing. So I'm like, yeah, all this stuff just kind of dit, 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 lines up <laughs> very well. And while we don't have the chakra system within heathenry, we have a multi-part soul system, which in some ways lines up really nicely. So it, a lot of what you're talking about makes total sense. With variation, of course, but it makes total sense when you, you actually lay it out and go, oh, that's what that's about. And all these little associations we have between the different systems is so uh, I just really find this all fascinating. This is this is good stuff. I really appreciate it. Yeah, it's it's amazing because, you know, if something is really there. <laughs> it's going to show up. Mm -hmm. Like, it kind of doesn't matter where you go. Like, the fact is, it really is there. I mean, it, you can go to any culture on the planet, and they're like, yeah, so there's, like, something in your stomach right here, mm -hmm. and there's, like, sometimes a thing in your throat, and, like, different cultures all have words for this, and different cultures have ways of interpreting it or expressing it, but... It's a real thing. And so, you know, I do, when I do a lot of spiritual counseling with people and things, I talk, I use the chakras as a, as a grounding tool, as a map. Mm -hmm. And then we work with what the person is as we go through whatever their process is, because spirit will lead their, their process. Um, I just help with a little bit of mapping um, and um, helping them to see patterns and, and pattern recognition and understand their language and, and helping them to actually get into their seat, right? And so as we go, we go through that process, though, it's like, yeah, every culture in the world has some way of expressing, like, the pit in your stomach, we say, right? Like, you feel, you feel some in the pit of your stomach. Well, we're saying the pit of your stomach because it's like that feeling, right? Right. And it's like, but every culture under the sun has it. And yet I can say, okay, that's third chakra. And every culture on the planet has third chakra, but yet they can have you for an operation and open you up and they can't point to what it is. Mm -hmm. But it's true. <laughs> because there's something to like testimony of the whole world, right? Like if everybody in the world testifies to it, then like... Something yeah. there, yeah. Something yeah, if, there. If there's a few billion people saying that there's something there, I'm pretty <laughs> sure there's something there. Right. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I actually, I had a really interesting thought when you were talking about um, how your body is considered like the food body and it feeds the energetic body. And I, I've been kind of working on... A, uh, an upcoming blog post about a new relationship with our food and playing around with the idea of what if our disconnect from like our spirit body disconnect to our physical body disconnect is actually connected to our disconnection to our food oh, yeah. to where we get our energy from because most people don't farm anymore most people don't raise animals for slaughter most people have no other relationship with their food besides going to a grocery store, picking it off the shelf and feeding it into the machine. You know, they don't really have a relationship with that food anymore. So you don't have that energetic connection because you did not raise that food yourself. You did not put your energy into that food for it then to be returned to you. So I, I've had that whole blog post kind of going on in my head and I'm slowly working it through, um, getting it from here to words. 
Um, but that's like one of my biggest thoughts recently is like, oh, yeah. what if our major, like the, the first steps in healing that disconnection is through our food, reconnecting to your food. Right. I agree. I, I was thinking about the same thing a little bit this morning, funny enough, because it's not even, it's not even that, um, we're not connected to our food in a lot of ways. There are people that just flat out don't trust anything that doesn't come from a package anymore, which mm-hmm. really is, is a crazy thought, but there, there are people that if it's growing out of the ground, it can't possibly be something that you would want to eat. And it's just, it, it's so strange. You know, a lot of us, we're, we're from rural areas or have lived in rural areas. And, and <laughs> so it's kind of hard for us to understand, but I, I've had firsthand stories of people that, you know, you go out into certain communities and you teach and you plant an apple tree and no one will eat the apples because they couldn't possibly be right because they don't come out of a bag from the grocery store. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that? You wouldn't believe how many, how many times I've freaked the girls out at work by picking a plantain or lamb's toe or the pineapple weed that mm-hmm. grows everywhere and just munching on it because the pineapple weed tastes like pineapples. You know, and they're just like, oh, my God, why are you eating that thing off the ground? I'm like, it's food. (laughs) Hang on. Back that train up. Unwind that. You work at a greenhouse. (laughs) Yeah, right. (laughs) Tim, we grow flowers. Just saying. Oh, and I've eaten violets, too. I pick the flowers (laughs) and I eat those. And they just look at me like I'm not. I love to eat flowers. I think eating flowers is one of the most amazing things. I had a roommate when I was in college and we were so poor. We had like no money, right? So like everybody's like going and getting ramen and we were so poor. And my roommate was from Puerto Rico, right? So she's like, um, we're hanging out and I'm like, yeah, I don't have any money for food. And she's like, me either. She's like, do we have any oil? And I'm like, yes. She's like, do we have any flour? I was like, yes. She's like, let's go foraging and we're in a city and we went from yard to yard and just picked one flower in each yard and she knew all the edible flowers in the neighborhood we went back with like this whole basket of flowers and we battered and fried them and had a feast oh that sounds so good (laughs) that does sound really good i was like i'm so poor i'm gonna eat flowers for breakfast i was like (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I was such a like luxury like <laughs> what a beautiful thing like I can't feed myself I'm gonna let the earth the mother's gonna rise up and feed me herself you know it was so loving and it, I don't know I think that's there's a symptom there too because there's like there's like the package and things that that is like creating separation and people are feeling separated, mm-hmm. but there's also the like zoning out, like people eating yes. and out. And I think that's a symptom. And I think that's the place to catch it. Yes. I, yeah, I would absolutely agree. Being aware of what you're eating and how much you're eating, like instead of sitting there on the couch and just watching TV and consuming an entire bag of Doritos, because who's ever, ever done that? You know, not me. <laughs> <laughs> but being aware of how much you're eating and then transforming it into being aware of what you're eating, you know, baby steps, take it one little step at a time. 
I'll think- tell you what, my daughter has been really instructive on this because uh, we we have to help her pace herself because she'll just shovel, uh, <laughs> especially if it comes to something she really likes. So we have to like in, insist she puts the fork down. Like, okay, you've had a bite, put the fork down, have a drink. And so it's it's kind of pushed me in my own in my own eating habits to slow down quite a bit, and I'm I'm eating less because of it, mm. which has yeah. been a really interesting knock on effect from just feeding our daughter. Um, but that makes a lot of sense because I mean, if you're just going to mindlessly consume, you don't think about it. You know, it's fuel at that point. It's not something you have a relationship with. And it's it's kind of like that opposite from like. <gasps> The earth is giving me food. Like, look at the color of this flower. Like, look at this, you know? And like that kind of surprise and awe of eating was such a, like, it kind of broke me out of that. Like, I don't know. It's like the opposite of just sitting and like mindlessly eating something. Mm-hmm. And then I don't even really remember the taste of it when I'm done. <laughs> like, was that good? Was that, was like, that so, yeah. <laughs> Was I happy with that? I don't know. I'm still kind of hungry because I I noticed I ate. Mm-hmm. So if it, yeah, I think that like um, how we care for it, like mm-hmm. as we're preparing it, um, I got into a practice yogic practice, right, of not eating anything f- like the way it came or whatever, but like preparing and plating the food. Mm. I also used to date a chef um, and he would always like plate the food, like in this gorgeous way. And you're like, oh, I can't eat this. This is like a picture, you know? (laughs) And there's something that's just different about that as your experience of like, I care about myself and I care about this place and I care about, even if it's just me, like, am I going to eat it on a paper plate and just like rush it in? Right. Or am I going to like put it on the nice plate? So at one point I realized I wasn't paying any attention. So I got the good China out. Mm, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That does make a difference. It that does. makes a huge difference. Yeah. Huh. I just ate on China. When you think about your, you know, like some of your big family holiday meals, just, you know, it's the same recipe you prepared a hundred times, maybe, but it's the fact that you're at a, at the special table or you're using the special china or you're with people that aren't there all the time. So you're kind of slowing down and enjoying the whole process. That's, that's a big chunk of the enjoyment for those sorts of meals. Yes. And it's fun when you have somebody over and you pull out the good china or you make something super special looking. Like, it, it may be regular, but it's special looking for some reason. Like, I will just put a piece of parsley and now it's pretty, you know. Dude, you're putting french fries on the good china. <laughs> like, I'm just going to go put a dress on. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. To like... So so what you're telling me is aesthetics actually do matter because they're connective. Yeah. It's a ritual. Yeah. And it's a connective because yeah. it makes it a ritual. So it's ritual feeding and it's a connective moment. And so I can put on the dress and put the fine china and, you know, neighbors just showing up and they're like, oh, oh, am I interrupting something? I'm like, no, you're our honored guest. 
And they're like, oh, you know, and then you invite the neighbor in and they didn't even know they were going to be eating over. And you're just like, we are doing it up because doing it up <laughs> is a great way to do it. Mm-hmm. And tonight. And doing all, yeah. And doing all that helps you get out of your traditional mindset or like right. your everyday mindset. Like it gets you into that eating mindset where you can actually slow down and enjoy what you've made and take pride in what you put together. Yes. And tonight at nine o'clock on QVC, the special Around Grandfather Fire dining set comes with commemorative plates, a shaman's rattle, and free Palo Santo. No, it's, we don't. Oh, know. If, 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 please let me know. I would like one. Okay, all our artist folks, we need you to design a commemorative plate for us. Oh. Well, we all of a sudden know what one of the tiers of our eventual Patreon is going to be, I think. This yeah. is, you get the official Grandfather Fire commemorative plate. That's the... Yes, oh. if you're the $50 tier, I'll carve runes in it. <laughs> I will help. That's right. That's right. You can feed the runes and yourself. <laughs> I like it. I like it. We're on to something here, guys. Oh, man. But I, I think I should say something, because this kind of was boiling in the back of my brain. Um, you've talked about how yoga studios have kind of exploded and how there's this mind-body-spirit connection that people are, are, when you're actually practicing yoga and you're not just exercising, when you're actually engaged in the yoga. Yeah. <clears throat> I think it says something that yoga has proliferated the way it has. And I'm kind of curious as to what your take on that is, because we've seen an explosion, even in the last 10 years, where I can go down any street into the smallest of small towns around me, and there's some kind of yoga studio set up shop. So do you think that there's kind of an undercurrent that is being tapped into, or is there, what, what's your view on that? I think it's amazing. <laughs> I think it's um a combination of the fact that, um, you know, people are trying to move more because there's been an explosion in um, health challenges, Mm -hmm. particularly gaining weight over the last, you know, 30 years. Um, But I think one of the reasons it's yoga and not something else is because honestly, ritual does something for people. And there's a ritual of putting the mat on the floor and starting the same way and moving through. Um, It's a way to have self time and time with your own nature, even though you're in a group. So it combines different aspects of a person's inner life with collectivity, which I think any kind of spiritual practice can do. But I think right now, you know, my dad's a minister and he and I have had a lot of conversations about, you know, how churches are basically dying right now Mm -hmm. and um, they're losing their numbers. People are having a hard time showing up for organized religion. People are having a really um, difficult time, but you know what? They are thirsty. They are hungry Mm -hmm. for something. Again, that feeding, they need the spiritual, actual spiritual food. And it's very challenging to get it only through words. Makes a lot of sense. It really does. I I actually have to tell you, Beth, you have ruined many many yoga studios for me <laughs> because you were 
Actually, honestly, to date, you are my only yoga teacher that I have ever had. I tried one studio in Ipsy and one uh, studio down the road for me that came pretty close, but she didn't do any of the breathing moving through the positions. And I'm over here doing the Ujjayi breath and people are just looking at me like I'm disturbing their peace. And I'm like, <laughs> why are you not breathing? <laughs> Yes, yes. Uh, well, thank you. Yeah, I think um, there's something to to the fact that you were very um, regular. And that consistency and practice with whatever we're doing, I think also really contributed. I mean, you were very dedicated and um we had a good group, didn't we? We had a good group who would like stick around and really try to get it. Yeah, absolutely. And we had a lot of people who had really amazing questions and actually wanted to go deeper. And I think when you get a group like that, there's something that happens um, synergistically. Um, and there, you know, you get a bunch of really awesome people together and they all have that spiritual depth and then something cool is going to happen. Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah, your group was also just really great. Um, and I mean, we we all bonded on so much, like talking about everything from like TV shows to like, <laughs> <laughs> you know, like symbolism and metaphor in TV shows and how practice actually relayed that. And mm -hmm. looking at like, oh, when I do this with my body, I'm also having this emotional, spiritual experience. And what does that actually mean? Mm -hmm. And yeah, so, so yeah, I, you too. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> um, that's hilarious. Look how embarrassed she is. She's, she's so horrible at taking compliments. It's fantastic. Hey, I'm getting better. <laughs> Working on it slowly. Uh, baby steps, right? You used to always do this thing and you told us that you weren't doing it with malicious intent, but like when you were presenting a challenging pose to us and we would give you that face of like, ooh, I don't know about that. You would smile because you were excited for us to get past that, to get past that blockage of like, oh, I don't think I can do that. And you're like, just go ahead and try it. And we would do it. And all of a sudden we were doing it. Yeah, I think there are times, too, where I'm like, hey, I'm going to give you all something I, know I don't think you can do. Let's have a good time. This mm -hmm. is going to, you know, I'm going to mess you up. <laughs> so what you're saying, Caitlin, is you're used to that kind of teaching, because I think Sarah and I have both done the same thing to you as well. Like, ha ha, yeah. guess what we're doing now? <laughs> yep, which is probably why I chose both of you as teachers, because of her. <laughs> Makes sense. Makes it sense. I was taught by um, some of my teachers that I needed to be very careful about that with people because nowadays, supposedly, I'd love your opinion on this, everybody, but they say that nowadays people don't really want you to give them anything they can't do yet, that they want really simple, easy things and to feel like they've always successfully completed everything or they won't keep coming back to class. I don't know how to teach that way. Yeah, 
I mean, I always try to be very nice and kind and understand what people's limitations are. I always try to help them and coach them through the process. Um, but I, I just don't know how to do a teaching process that is, that is easy because I, I just don't think you learn anything that way. No, I, and I don't think you can grow that way either, because in order for there to be growth, you have to have that opposition. Mm-hmm. You have to have that, like like a seed sprouting up out of the ground. It has to push through that hard dirt in order to get its leaves up, right? You're not right. going to learn anything if it's all easy. Mm-hmm. So you have to do that. I also actually think people are intelligent and actually care about their own growth, like inherently. Like, I mm-hmm. think we can't help it. And I think people might not be accustomed to it, but I think, you know, if, if you're looking at people and they, um, they're kind of at sort of their limit, if you can go just past it and say, I know this is just past it, but we're actually going to do this Mm -hmm. and we might have to try again and again. And like, that's what this is for. This is actually for that practice. Let's go. Like, just like find that power in yourself and like, hold on to your hats, honeys. We're going for a ride. You know, like, uh, like, here we go. And, and like, I love that scene in, um, did you see Indiana Jones in the temple of doom? Mm -hmm. Yes. I, get, I have that when I play, that's like in my hip pocket. There's like a YouTube clip that's just the scene where Indiana Jones is like short brown and like says a bunch of stuff in Chinese to him. And he's like, hang on, lady, we go for a ride. And they're like laughing around the road. And she's like, oh my God, are you nuts? And I'm like, that's the best ever that feeling of like the energy drawing up you can feel it go right into your third chakra right into that solar plexus and you're like oh oh i think i'm actually gonna do this and then like you go you go and it's part of understanding where spiritual energy meets physical energy and it's part of understanding um, in a person where they come to understand what they're actually made of. Absolutely. And I think a lot of times that energy translates into the feeling of fear, but it is actually mistranslated because it, it while it is fear, it's not like the, the fight or flight fear. It's that fear of what's around this corner. Mm-hmm. The, does that make sense? Like it, it is fear, but mm-hmm. it isn't fear. It's that little bit of you have to push through it, but you need that energy in order to push through it. So embrace it and let's go. I just think, have you guys seen the new Nike campaign that's out right now? Because I thought it had a really interesting message to it. The The no, new Nike campaign that, that I'm, you're, you're, I'm nope. seeing a few ads on YouTube, that sort of thing, is the importance of finding yourself a rival. Not someone that you hate, but someone that is comparable and skilled to you that is always going to be pushing you to up your game so they up their game so you up your game and there's there's something there to teaching as well where you're constantly trying to you elevate the student the student elevates you it's got to go this back and forth where you're you're constantly being forcing each other into a healthy growth and but i think as an ad campaign is a very fascinating concept that that's that that's out there right now it also seems somewhat socially responsible at this time. Mm-hmm. 
yeah as a, as a as a way to just take rivalry um as yeah. good sportsmanship yeah take it take it out of the realm of actually hating somebody or wanting to destroy them and just saying this person is actually good for my growth as well and I, so i think that's a very responsible message yes and the value of hanging in there mm-hmm. yeah yep. you know confidence arises when we become capable of feeling feelings that are uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Confidence is not based on, I know I can do something. Besides, I can feel fear and I'm not immobile. Confidence arises when I'm like, yeah, I've felt this one before. I can feel it again. And I think it can be um, dislike or fear or um, anger or any of those negative emotions that people will sometimes notice they're feeling and then feel like they've got to walk away or like maybe I want to avoid this situation. And I think for people who are, who are um, experiencing even things like depression or general sadness in their lives or people who are not feeling very confident. Um, I think providing little mini ordeals, right? Like we were talking about ordeals at the beginning, right? Right. And like how important that hero's journey is to like actually have an ordeal and successfully complete it. That we need more than ever, we need adults in our midst that actually have completed the process properly. And I think providing, like a, a good teacher can provide little mini ordeals or little miniature experiences for a person to experience maybe some of the negative feeling and learn that it it's okay to feel that. And actually it's not an indicator that something's gone wrong. It's an indicator that like my blood is flowing and there's energy available. Like now I have something that I can work with. And then the person goes, Oh yeah, I felt this before I can keep going. Yeah. There's this goofy notion that, that to have confidence, you have to like, know you're going to be able to do this task. And it's like, no, 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 that's certainty. That's not confidence. (laughs) <laughs> there's, there's a difference i mean if you know you can do it because you've done it a million times and it's not a challenge well that's that's really not confidence that's that's your experience and your practice saying well i know this so well i don't even have to think about doing it you know, confidence is different it's utterly different to me uh with with that understanding in mind because the hero's journey actually has like death and failure in it like mm-hmm. not not every hero gets to the end of that hero's journey and that's okay that's not every hero's destination um and if you don't have failure somewhere in there you're just it's a power fantasy really you know failures make us who and what we are screw ups are how we learn uh you don't build confidence if you don't screw up um, it's one of the things that they're finding with, with kids who can blaze through books at an early age and then they're ignored until they hit, say, ninth grade or something. And all of a sudden they run smack up against, oh, I can't do this AP course because nobody challenged me for the last six years. Mm-hmm. Um, 
you know, it's amazing the kind of growth people will endure in the face of adversity, the kinds of, of real work that gets done when you're not just, okay, I've done this thing a million times. I'm just going to go through the numbers. You know, whether it's spiritual growth, whether it's growth of a skill or an ability, or I, you know, I don't know how to do this particular leather stitch. Let's learn. I'm going to screw up at least three leather pieces doing this. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, so without that, that pushback, there's really nothing to be gained. You're just doing something. And it's, it's about as much effort as just sitting on the couch and eating a whole bag of potato chips <laughs> while something's occupying you. I think, I think building confidence, it requires you to have that edge to, to press against. I think sure? I, I like that idea you said about certainty. I haven't thought about that before, but like, honestly, if I think about it, somebody who has felt certainty or stayed in the realm of certainty with, they haven't made choices to get out of certainty, right? They've stayed within that realm for themselves. I don't enjoy those people. Mm, right. Yeah. Very true. I, I think somebody who has never had challenges and had the experience of um, kind of the edges of their abilities is somebody who uh, isn't used to being a good sport or like caring much about the problems other people are having or feeling empathy for the struggles that most people are going through in their lives. And I think, um, yeah, if you stay with certainty, probably people don't really enjoy you that much either. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so try all those really hard challenges. It will make people like you. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. Hey guys, I hate to do it. It's been about an hour and a half and I unfortunately am on a little bit of a timetable myself tonight. So Beth, tell everybody um, that's listening how they can find you if they want more information on your spiritual counseling or anything else like that. Oh, thank you. Yes, I'd love to work with people. Um, and especially people who are listening to this are probably really cool. I love working with people who've kind of already done some of their work and we're ready to really dive in. So they can find me at coldwaterhaven.com, coldwaterhaven.com. Or you can find me on Instagram at coldwaterhaven. Or you can call me 906 251-0032 and just ask for Beth. Thanks. Fantastic. Well, we're going to have to make sure that we have you on again because this was a really enjoyable conversation and uh, um, thanks for joining us tonight. We really appreciate it. Thank, Thank you. you very much. I, I'm super glad that I finally got the three of you to talk. Like, you have no idea how, the, how amazing that was for me. So thank you, universe, for finally making it happen. <laughs> it's so great. Thank you, Caitlin. <laughs>
都让。